Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I told you a story of our time in Villafranca of uh, how we were told that it was going to be 60 kids, and it was 12 and 10, ended up being 51. What if I had said that the story was there were actually 12, and it actually dropped to 5 and 3, and there was no one else? Would it have been a waste of time to go? And in one sense, you would say, yes, well, we spent all this time, money, effort, energy to go for three kids. Is that really worth it in the end? You know, this story in John chapter 5, and as well in John 4, we heard about Jesus taking very specific time to go to two individual people who were of literally no significance to anyone in the whole world. In fact, they were the opposite. They were people whom you would not want to be around. And when you think about the fact that Jesus had three years of ministry in this world, so in those three years time, spending even an afternoon or an evening or a day with somebody was actually proportionately a lot of his time when you think that he only had three years. Because this man who was literally surrounded by people who could go to, he could have gone to Caesar directly if he wanted to, or Herod or any of the ruling parties of his day. Instead, he chose individuals who in the world's eyes were completely insignificant. Why did he do that? What does that have to say to us? We're going to look at this man in John chapter 5. He was a paralyzed man, paralyzed for 38 years. 
And I'd like to focus on three characteristics of this man that I do think speaks so much about who Jesus is, why he does what he does, and how that actually speaks to you as an individual person. So the first characteristic is that he is absolutely feeble. In verses 1 through 7, we see this. Second, he is formal. He's cluttered and filled with formality in verses 8 through 13. And then finally, he is most importantly forgiven in verses 14 through 16. So first, let's look at his feebleness in verses 1 through 7. We are told in verses 2 to 5, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate Pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. I mean, can you imagine someone being paralyzed? I'm not talking about paralyzed in our day, but in Jesus' day for 38 years. This is a time where there's essentially no medical treatment, no hospitals. He's lying on his mat for 38 years. I love my bed. I love it, especially after a long vacation or three weeks with over 20 teenagers. I really love it. I love it when I get home, you take a shower, nice freshly washed sheets and you just sink in and it is the best place in the world. But that same bed that I love in that moment, if I laid there straight for 38 years, that becomes a torture chamber. That's what this bed was for this man, this mat. It was a torture chamber. You cannot lie on one place for 38 years without getting sores, open sores, I mean, this is a, a man who is paralyzed. And another note about this scene, if you look at verses two to five, there are what translations call great multitudes of those who are lame, paralyzed, and blind in this place. Bethesda is not Bethesda Naval Hospital. That's where you get the name from in Washington. But it's this small area where there's it's surrounded by, and there's a pool, a small little pool. And in that place, there are people who literally cannot move. And this man for 38 years, well, let me ask you something. How did they go to the bathroom? They didn't. They just went where they were. If they felt sick, they vomited. It was a place that probably stunk. It was filled with feces and urine smell and just vomit and open sores and wounds, people having infections, people dying. How did they even get rid of the people who died? So you can imagine this place. This is a terrible place to be. This is not a place that a respected rabbi should be in. It's a place that you run far away from. We have a hard enough time, perhaps, if you volunteer for a city impact, you go to the Tenderloin and you see perhaps feces and drug needles everywhere, and you think, I don't want to go there. Some of us maybe think, I don't want to go to San Francisco anymore. Well, this is far worse than San Francisco and the Tenderloin. And here, this respected rabbi, Jesus, doesn't avoid the area. He intentionally goes there. And we're told that 
Jesus goes to this place to meet one very specific person, just like he did in John chapter 4, where rather than avoiding Samaria, where most Jews would not want to go because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus had to go to Samaria to meet that one woman who was absolutely immoral. And for a Jewish rabbi man to meet an immoral Samaritan woman, why, that was scandalous. And so in the same way that Jesus has to go to meet this woman, he goes very specifically to meet this man. As physically as unable as this man is to get into that pool, so too no one can come to Christ by their own effort. It's not possible. And you will see in the story that Jesus' purpose of going to this man is not simply physical healing, it's spiritual healing. That's actually more important than the physical healing. But as difficult, as actually impossible as it is for a man paralyzed for 38 years to get into that water by himself, so too spiritually, it was impossible for him to be saved. And it's impossible for anyone. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves from sin. There is nothing the church can do to save a single person. You can bring your kids to gospel train or to youth ministry, and they can be a part of something, but they will not be saved because of that ministry. Now, that doesn't mean we don't bring people to church. It doesn't mean that we don't place ourselves into a place where we hear Christ and the gospel preached. It's the number one reason why you should bring your child or your teenager or your young adult, if you're an adult, why you should come to church every Sunday. It's not because by coming to church, it saves you, but it's because you place yourself into the position to hear the good news of the gospel, which is, as Paul says in Romans 10, by the means by which we are saved is to the hearing of the gospel of Christ. Which is all another reason why when you are in a church, you should hear the gospel. Always. Throughout the worship, throughout the preaching, through conversations, hopefully you are hearing something about the means by which we are saved and is through Christ and Christ alone. But going to church does not save you. Being part of a missions trip does not save you. We stress this over and over again during our past three weeks. This will not save anyone. You can feel excited. You can feel emotional. You will be impacted. You will appreciate the culture that we're going to experience, and we experience it very deeply. The food, the people, the warmth, the church, it's wonderful. But none of that will save anyone. And so we cannot go in with our, this, this misguided notion that somehow a personal experience is going to save someone. But it has to be Jesus who saves by his spirit. Maybe you or someone you know is very cynical towards Christ. Maybe very dark-hearted, oppressed. And for that person, it just seems impossible for them to ever turn to Christ. Maybe some who are parents are thinking, there's no way my child will turn to the Lord. Look how spiritually oppressed and dark they are. And so we give up hope. 
We think it's just not possible. But this story is a story for you. It's the story of the impossible. A guy who had been stuck in this place for 38 years, laying on a mat. 38 years. It's impossible for this man to be healed. And yet that's exactly what happens. So if this paralyzed man can be healed, don't you think that our Savior could actually save the person whom we believe it is impossible to save? Maybe another problem is that we actually think that we were easy to save. If you are a Christian, I want you to know that the amount of power it took, spiritually speaking, to save you is greater than all of the energy of this universe combined. That it is easier for Jesus to heal a man paralyzed for 38 years than it is to save you, me and you. It's not nothing. Because here's the problem with us is that we think to ourselves, well, I was actually a pretty decent person. I didn't kill anyone. I wasn't like the Samaritan woman who was an adulteress or an adulterer. I didn't do that many bad things. So therefore, we have this sort of spectrum of who are the most difficult to save and who are the least difficult. And it's all based on our works, on our morality, on our station in life. And so we think it's actually, we've, we've contributed a little bit to our salvation because there are people out there who've done terrible things and because they've been so bad, it's, easy, it's much more difficult for God to save them than for me. When we think that way, we've gone down the road to what I would call religious formalism, which is exactly what this man was like and what the Pharisees were like in verses eight through 13. Jesus asked this question to this man. In verse six, do you want to be healed? Doesn't that sound like a dumb question to you? I mean, here's this guy who's in terrible, a terrible state, and Jesus asks this really obvious question. But Jesus, quite often, you'll see, especially in the Gospel of John, does this. He asks the obvious question because it's meant to be a spotlight into their heart because they have a problem. They see the world through physical material eyes. And what they don't see is the extra layer, the ultimate layer behind it. That it's not about physically being healed, it's about spiritually being healed. And so when Jesus is asking, do you want to be healed? The man goes on and he sort of describes, well, this is what I want. Physically, I can't get to the water. And so Jesus is saying, well, no, do you really want to be healed? And he can't get to that place. He can't admit one thing, weakness. I mean, is there any more picture of a weak person than this man? Completely feeble and unable. And yet, he actually can't see his own weakness. His own weakness is not his legs or his back, his spine. His weakness is his heart. His heart of doubt as uh, Michael shared last week. His heart of anger, self-pity, his heart of sin, self-confidence. It kept him from seeing the true question of what Jesus was asking him. Whenever there is a lack of weakness, there's an inability to see the living Christ. That goes hand in hand. 
When our bank accounts are full, that's when we have a hard time seeing Christ. When we are strong and healthy and doing well, that's when it's hard. When we're living in a really nice home in San Ramon, it's very difficult to see our need for Jesus. You know, when a person who is in debt, financial debt, they owe a lot of money and they say to themselves, if I could just get to zero, if I could just have nothing, not owe, not have anything, it'll be so much better. And they get to zero and then they say, if I could just have $1,000 in my bank account, after they get 1,000, if I could only 10,000, 100,000, 500,000, 1 million, it just is endless. A flip side of that is the concept of generosity and giving, tithing, giving. You know, the, the child who has a dollar makes a dollar and you as a parent says, you know, why don't you give this 10 cents to the Lord? Suddenly 10 cents is a lot of money when you only have a dollar. And you think to yourself, if I, I will do that when I get a hundred dollars. When you get $100 at your part-time job scooping ice cream and your parent, mom and dad says, you know, why don't you give $10 to the Lord or to just to, to, to this missions organization? $10 seems like a lot when you make $100. And you say, well, I'll wait till I make $1,000. Do you notice proportionately what happens as the money increases of how much you make is that also the percentage of the the percentage stays the same, but the amount starts increasing? And when you make a thousand, a hundred seems like a lot. When you make ten thousand, a thousand, well, that's a lot of money. When you make a hundred thousand, it just keeps on going up. This is the challenge with our hearts: is that we will never see Christ when we have a lot, and the more we gain, the dimmer our view of Jesus is. And when that happens, we miss out on God's incredible blessing. Theologian A.W. Pink, he says this, before he furnishes the abundant supply, we must first be made conscious of our emptiness. Before he gives strength, we must be made to feel our weakness. Slow, painfully slow, are we to learn this lesson and slower still to own our nothingness and take the place of helplessness before the mighty one. When we were in Villa Franca, we had the chance, our kids went to, um, all of us went to Pastor Gabi's house. His house is actually beautiful. He built it himself, literally with his own hands. And one of the things that's unique about this man, and I, we've shared this story before, is that he, he actually has essentially his own mini zoo. It's usually people who are rich people who will say, have a lynx, They'll buy an exotic animal, a lynx or an ostrich, and they'll say, oh, I, it's always glamorous when you think about it until you have to take care of it. Then they don't want to take care of it anymore. They contact them and say, would you be interested in a lynx or in a tiger or in a snake? Whatever it might be. And so he takes it in. He sort of becomes the, the modern-day Francis of Assisi. And he was sharing the story of his animals with us. And he was sharing how he himself, with his wife, who is a physician, but she had a stroke, so she works part-time. And monthly, they make about 2,500 euros a month. 2,500 euros, multiply that by 12. So he asked the question, 
how do they pay for all these animals, this house, everything? And then he takes in how many orphans? 13, 15 orphans and two adults into his house. Then you ask, how is he going to feed those people? So you do the calculation, 2,500 euros a month. Now there are like 19 people and uh, a lot of animals and they have this house. How, how does that work? You know, the amazing thing is that his answer is, as he trusts in the Lord, God supplies. But if you don't ever place yourself into a position of need because of your trust in the Lord, you never experience God. You never experience the abundance that God wants to supply. As A.W. Pink says, before he furnishes the abundant supply, we must first be made conscious of our emptiness. Until we are empty, we never experience grace and, and, and the fullness. God wants to bless you fully, but he's not going to bless you because you're wealthy and you give him a lot. He's going to bless you because you have nothing and you trust in him and him alone. Until that happens, you will not experience the miraculous work that the Lord wants to do through you. That was the problem of this man. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. He just couldn't get it. Just like the Samaritan woman. Remember when Jesus says, give me a drink. And she says, well, how are you going to drink from this well, this well? And she starts talking about materially what's going on. The same with this guy. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see the spiritual need and hunger in his heart. He only sees the physical need. And he says, no one, uh, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Just like the Samaritan woman, all he saw was the physical problems of his life. And I, I would venture to guess that many of us are exactly like this. When we think about the Lord, we think of our physical material problems. I don't have enough of this. My child is rebelling against me. I am struggling in my marriage. And so, yes, these are real issues. Just like for this man, he was really suffering. But the problem was his physical suffering took precedence over his, the concern of his spiritual soul. And it's always the greatest issue, as we'll talk about tonight, is as people are thinking, how do I grow in marriage? It's not going to be communication skills and getting your finances right and thinking about how to serve one another well. It's actually, I have a desperate need and it's for Christ and it's so empty without Jesus. And I take it out on my wife and my husband. I am selfish, I'm self-centered. Until that takes place, there's no healing. There's no growth, there's no joy. And so we are so stuck on the physical, it keeps us from seeing who Jesus is and what he wants to do. That's called religious formalism. Especially the person who goes to church, who is moral, who obeys the law, who does what is right and good. If you notice, verse four is missing in our Bibles. It's actually a manuscript issue. It's basically the oldest manuscripts do not include verse four. So there is, that's why most modern uh, Bible translations leave it out, but they do give a footnote. And here's what the footnote says. It, verse four in the newer manuscript says this, 
For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And even though probably this was not in the original scripture, the essence of it was there in the milieu of the day, which is that this place was known to be a place of spiritual healing, hot springs, and we all know mineral waters has some restorative healing quality to it. It certainly would not heal someone who's been paralyzed for 38 years. But because he believed, and many of those people believe that angels came and stirred the water, in their mind, it was all about getting into the pool where the angels were stirring the water. It had to have this dramatic healing. And that's what Bethesda was for them. It was all about do the work, get the angels. I just have to pull myself in somehow, and as soon as I get in, everything will be okay with my life. That's not too much different from the Pharisees in verses 10 through 12, the religious elite, who are also stuck with that idea of doing religious deeds for God. For these men, because the man picked up his mat on the Sabbath, they criticized him. They condemned him. You know, in Exodus 20, when it talks about the Sabbath, there is nothing about do not pick up your mats on the Sabbath. It's just not there. They've created all these extra rules as extrapolations of what the Sabbath law was about, the purpose of the Sabbath. And so they had this idea that do these religious works and therefore you will be saved. Everything will go well with you. Life will be good. And we venture off into those areas again very easily. If I go to serve overseas on this missions trip, God will bless me with such and such. If I serve in this ministry, then the Lord will be faithful to me. He will give me things. He will bless me. If I read the Bible and so, and so forth and so on. But that doesn't change a single soul. It's always sobering to think that the greatest opponents, the most vicious, vehement opponents of Jesus and the gospel were the religious formalists. They turned the gospel of grace into a work. And by doing so, they became externally righteous. They actually looked righteous. They created Pharisees. Pharisees is an external righteousness, moral righteousness. And you can create Pharisees by compelling them to obey the law. If you say to a child, if you do these, these, these things, I will reward you with all sorts of candy and whatever. But if you disobey, you will get the stick. And you better obey and you can do it angrily. And, and so you can create behavior, but you cannot change the heart. It merely creates Pharisees, not followers of Christ. But you know what? Here's the thing is that maybe if we're honest with ourselves, we actually don't mind creating Pharisees. We actually would prefer it over someone who maybe is licentious, but turns to Christ. And think of it this way. Would you rather have a drug addict son who is 
um, derelict and ends up being on the streets, homeless, is imprisoned, turns to Christ and is freed at the very end of his life? Or would you rather have a son who graduates from an elite school, makes a lot of money, gives you a lot of that money, treats you so well, marries a woman that you would approve of except the fact that they don't trust in Christ, but this person never turns to Christ in the end. Now really, I know you think, boy, that's an extreme example. Come on, there's gotta be something in the middle in that. I just wanna give you that because I wanna prick your heart, really. Which one would you choose for your child? If you had to choose one, if the Lord said, I want you to choose one, and that son who is a drug addict, you are in pain your whole life, but finally they turn versus the other. Which would you choose? If we're honest with ourselves, we'd be pretty tempted to raise the Pharisee. We want behavioral change because why? Maybe it's because it looks good on me. Definitely, if you had to choose the two, it looks better if, uh, for me if they're the Pharisee. See, might we rather have a Pharisee as a son who is righteous, moral, respected, educated, but indifferent to Christ than the Samaritan woman who is immoral, shamed as a daughter, but who opens her heart to Christ. And I'm not saying that we do nothing, that we shouldn't obey. Well, of course we must obey, but it has to be the outflow of a changed and transformed heart. And there is a place for placing your child or your loved one into a place of behavioral change so that they can receive some blessing. There are common grace blessings through that. But I'm pitting the two against one another very intentionally because I want us to really deal with what is at the core of our being. Is it that I want to surround myself with comfort, even if it's at the cost of salvation, or I actually care most about Christ himself, and everything else is loss, as Paul says. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The third quality of this man, characteristic, as we see in verses 14 through 16, is really surprising. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I want to make three points very specifically about the relationship between sin and sickness that I ask that you take to heart. First is sickness is ultimately the result of sin. And I underline the word ultimately because that's a key word there. Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Paul says for the wages of sin is death, he's saying that not just eternal death, meaning damnation death, but he means all death, physical death, the impact of death, the consequences of death, the relationship of all that it takes when dying does happen. So 
That includes physical, spiritual, societal pain and suffering that leads to death. All of that happens because of sin, ultimately. And so even when there are instance, many instances where pain and suffering is not directly caused from sin, that pain and suffering ultimately exists because of sin. And we can never divorce the two from one another. Pain and suffering happen because there's ultimately a brokenness to this world, God's plan and sin. Second, sickness is not always a direct result of one's sin or one's family sin. Not always a direct result. Sometimes, but not always. In John chapter nine, verses one through three, this very issue is raised. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In this instance, his sin and his parents' sin clearly, according to Jesus, did not cause his blindness. This is really critical because the prosperity word of faith uh, gospel says that there is a direct link, a causal link between faith and your prosperity and faith and your suffering or lack of faith in your suffering. So if you are faithful to God, God will bless you with all sorts of things. And culturally, this is all over the place. It's not just in word of faith church movements. It's in many different contexts. Maybe you've heard it from different people, even within your own family. Maybe from your own parents who attend a even culturalist or a certain type of church. If you go to morning prayer, you will have a really blessed day. If you stop reading your Bible, you're going to have a car accident on that day. If you give to missions, then God is going to abundantly bless you with riches and wealth. And they might not put it exactly like that, but there seems to always be this causal link. Faith leads or causes prosperity. The flip side, I've heard as well. I mean, one person told me the story of uh, this mother, woman, who was going to a prosperity gospel church. She was struck with cancer and she died. And the pastor and the leadership of the church told their family, you did not pray hard enough for your mother, your wife, and that's why she died. And can you imagine the guilt that would be upon that family? So that's the flip side is there's this karma-like idea of how we view faith. And that is not the gospel. That's anti-gospel. Third, sickness can sometimes be a direct result of our sin. If I am drunk, drunkenness is a sin, and then I drive, and I'm going at high speeds, uncontrolled in my car, and crash into a tree and become paralyzed, my sin directly caused my paralysis. And there are many instances where direct sin leads to a, a causal link to suffering. Not always, but there are times this really does happen. In our passage today, this seems to be the case. When Jesus says, sin no more, 
stops, in, in other words, stop sinning. And then he says that nothing worse may happen to you. That, that has a causal relationship. And so most scholars think that actually for this man in particular, there was something that he did that caught that sin that actually led to his paralysis. Now, if he was paralyzed for 38 years, the question is, we don't know how old he was. Maybe he was 50. I mean, imagine if he was a relatively middle-aged young man. So <laughs> my age, 54. Well, I'm actually 53. I'm forgetting my age. I'm about to turn 54 soon. If he was 54 years old, 38 years of paralysis, he would have been a kid when this happened. Now, I'm not saying that's how old he was. He could be 90 for all I know. But I think he, I'm imagining he's relatively around 50 to 60 years old. So as a teenager, perhaps, something happened in his life where he had rebelled against God and it caused him, this sin led to a paralysis for 38 years. The reason why this is important is that, I go back to this story, it's multitudes of people are there, paralyzed, lame. It smells, it's loud, it's diseased, it's dirty, it's filthy, it's disgusting. It's a place that someone like Jesus should not go to, and yet he does. Why does he go to just one man? You know, there are so many stories about Jesus where he goes to crowds and multitudes and starts healing, and a lot of people are healed. In this story, one person is healed amongst multitudes. Why? Why this man? I have to believe it has to do with something to do with his sin. That is to say that more than anyone else, this man with this direct cause of his sin to leading to his brokenness, that Jesus was going for that very specific purpose, not to heal him physically, but to show him the love of Christ salvation of his soul. And so he deals with that. Jesus sought this man out despite his sin. Physical healing is always secondary. Some of you are going to one day ask me, our leadership, our church, and you're going to say, please pray for so-and-so or maybe me because I have this happening. You got a bad diagnosis at the doctor's office. And we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray, Lord, please bring healing. Someone's going to be in the hospital. I'm going to go there and you're going to say, please pray for healing. I'm going to pray for that healing. I genuinely will. But guess what? Let's say you're healed. You know what's going to happen to you eventually? You're going to die. No healing in this world is permanent. Eventually, you will go back to that hospital. You will die. Eventually, that loved one that you pray for healing, even if they are healed, a decade later, a month later, five years later, they're going to die. This is why physical healing is so temporary. This is why if you gain riches and wealth, it will not last. It is a vanity, a chasing after the wind. I read an article this morning. Actually, it was on Slate, Mag Slate Magazine, Slate.com, and it was about churches being emptied. I don't know if any of you happened to see that. And it was this, just this, these beautiful churches all in 
all over the United States, they're dying out. I mean, it must have taken so much money, effort, time. I know, because it took a lot to build this building. That's why I have more gray hair than ever before. And someone, somewhere, a bunch of leaders got together and they built this beautiful church building. But you know what was missing in those buildings? The gospel. One generation believed it, the next generation assumed it, the next generation lost it, as Dia Carson notes. That's what happens. Once the gospel is lost and not taught, then there's nothing but just a big, empty building. And this is what this man had if he was just physically healed. Do not look at the story simply as a story of, wow, it's amazing that a 38-year paralyzed man was healed. Look at it as Jesus, as important as that physical healing was, he needed to hear, experience the spiritual leading of the uh, healing of the idolatries of his heart. And those idolatries are revealed in such times. Why do we parents get so discouraged by our children's actions, especially when they misbehave? We get so angered, so depressed, so frustrated. Is it because their souls are doomed forever? Probably that's not what's bothering us. Probably it's because Maybe in our heart of hearts, we're ashamed because it makes us look bad. My reputation. It's one of the reasons pastor's kids hate being pastor's kids. Because if they fail to behave, then how can a pastor give a talk on parenting like I will do in the next two weeks when their kids are all in shambles? Far too often, it's because our children are our reputation. They are our glory. They are our identity. And so when we see our kids not measuring up, our glory is hurt. It's impacted. Because we have been, we want glory. We've wanted it ever since we were a child ourselves. And ever since we didn't get to hit the home run. Or maybe we did. Maybe we were in the honors society or whatever. This group achieved this, did this. We love glory. And in this sense, we are the lame man. Our bodies are broken, but far more internally, our hearts are broken. We have sinned. We are helpless. We are feeble. We are paralyzed. We can't get into the water. And here's the problem with the water. Look. If he got into the water, would he have been healed? Absolutely not. It's a fool's errand. It's a broken cistern. We think if I can only achieve, accomplish this, if my family is like this, if I get to this career path in my life, if all of this happens, then, then I'll finally be okay with my life. It's the water. Jesus says, do not seek that, a broken cistern. I have living water to offer you. It will never run dry. You need to come to me, but you have to surrender your glory. Surrender your idol. Trust me. Do you not think I want to bless you abundantly? But you have to come to me weak and empty and feeble. You have to believe that I am everything to you. 
And when you do that, you will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this man's story. It's not a pleasant one. It reeks of terrible things physically, but far more than the physical stench of filth and excrement is the soul. Whatever we have ever smelled that is considered trash and gross and disgusting in this world, infinitely worse is our soul that has rotted away because of our chasing after vanities, things that will not last. Oh God, you are the only one who can open hearts. We cannot get to that well water alone. Jesus, I pray for those who have not trusted in you today. Would you open their hearts? Some, Lord, who have believed that they are they have no need for you. Their minds have, made, have been made up, and it seems impossible. For some of us, we just have these people in our hearts, in our lives, and we think they cannot change. They will not. And it's true. They will not on their own. But if you can save this man, you can save anyone. If you can save a wretch like me, you can save anyone. As we come to this table, oh Lord, help us to see this terrible price that you had to pay so that we might be able to actually be set free. Thank you, Father, for this word that shows us in our feebleness and our weakness that you are able to save and you love to do so. In Jesus' name we pray.